I'll have what she's having. I love relationships. I love romantic comedies. I love love. We don't know what Cinderella looked like because she's not real. Yes, they freaking got it. Really earn that happily ever after at the end. Change the writing. It's not that hard. Hello, fellow hopeful romantics, and welcome to What She's Having, presented by Meet Cute. Where a glass of rosé, okay, it's not mandatory, but it's certainly encouraged. I'm your host, Ashley Eskew, and our guest today is my favorite, Darius Rose, a.k.a. Jackie Cox from season 12 of RuPaul's Drag Race. Miss Cox, if you're naughty. Now, Jackie Cox may be famous for being the first Canadian-Persian contestant on RuPaul's Drag Race, but Darius Rose is famous to me for being one of my best friends since high school. Darius transferred to our high school junior year, and we played opposite each other many, many times on a stage. In fact, oh, I'm sure we've made out. I'll have to ask him later. Um, I'm really glad I didn't ask him that. You'd probably get a review of what kind of kisser I am. This drag queen was actually our prom king. But my favorite thing about Darius is that he has always had an open heart, completely willing to call me out with love and listen to me even when I said crazy things, but also use his big, big brain to open me up to ideas outside of myself. And I think he does that exact thing today. I cannot wait to share with you one of my dear, dear friends, the man who always told me my boyfriend was gay before I found out myself, Darius Rose, a.k.a. Jackie Cox. Why his chunky 70 heels? Why not? <gasps> I love Why those. Not? You know, just living my best life. How much of your day is consumed buying things for Jackie? Uh, not that much. It's just, it's usually there, there's four specific things. So um, on a series of photos inspired by a TV show that has hit the cultural lexicon. Is this the WandaVision series? Because your Agatha Harkness was on point. I want more. You will get many more. <laughs> Are you constantly art directing your own life? That's what it sounds like. That's kind of what drag is in some way. You, you're kind of the one-stop creative force behind your own drag. So it's kind of whatever you want. Well, that brings up a good point. Before we start, A, for just my own knowledge, and B, for our listeners, I want to talk about pronouns when it comes to Darius in drag and out of drag and the difference. If I am in drag which I am not today, but if I am, I would love if people use she, her, her pronouns. Out of drag, I am okay with he, she, or they pronouns. Ashley, since you knew me before, I used anything other than he pronouns, and I still use he pronouns. I am totally okay if you want to use he pronouns with me, or if you want to use she pronouns with me, or if you want to use they pronouns. I, In my personal life, I think of myself as gender expansive and expanding on the idea of what my gender is, what gender can be, and the language we use around that. I have been there since the beginning of your drag career. I remember when Jackie was born at America's Next Top Drag Queen. Is that what it was called? Very close. Very close. It's called So You Think You Can Drag, oh, so you but like very close. Very close. I remember your final performance. And I know that she has her own closet in uh, 
your house kitchen apartment. She's moved out. She is now not even in my apartment anymore. She is now in her own studio uh, where I'm coming to you from, where this big screen is behind me and then behind the screen is literally racks of drag you've always been a performer let's get that clear in fact the first time i met darius was at university high school and i've never told you this story and i'm slightly embarrassed <gasps> so it was for auditions for dark of the moon and oh, you gosh. were wearing a beautiful merlot colored turtleneck look it's still my color <laughs> And well, that's kind of the embarrassing part of the story. So you were at these auditions and I was like, who is this new guy? And kind of crushing on you until, of course, I got to know you and I just crushed on you in different ways that maybe weren't romantic. Oh my But gosh. I totally did have a crush on you the first time I met you, little 14-year-old Ashley. Oh, that's so cute. Um, I didn't have a crush on you. You know? <laughs> I'm okay with that. I understand that. But I did recognize right away like how amazing you were. You were a freshman. I was a junior. And you um, got a lead in the first play you auditioned for. It was also the first play I auditioned for at high school because I transferred junior mm -hmm. year. And we both came in and said, forget the hierarchy of this high school. We're taking over. That's kind of our philosophy on life, I feel like. We're smart. <laughs> we'll do whatever we need to do to figure out this life. Why not? That's a good way to live life. How was Jackie born? Tell me about why you turned to drag and started this incredible career. The short version is just that, you know, I loved theater. As Ashley mentioned, I was doing theater growing up and I went to UCLA for theater. And then I said, you know, let me move to New York and try this out. It's like, you know, that's where you go for theater. And I moved to New York and I went to a couple open calls and I just realized I didn't like the what Broadway was at the time mm -hmm. and what Broadway... I think Broadway is always kind of in a state of having a conversation with itself. And I think in that time, this was the um, earlier 2000s, Broadway was kind of pushing itself out of this cookie cutter mold that it kind of had gotten itself into because Broadway became big business again in the 90s. Like Broadway had this period in like the 80s where it kind of like fell off you know, in terms of making a lot of money. And then Broadway started making a lot of money. And I think that kind of forced and a lot Disney of- Disney came in. And Disney came in. And I think that forced a lot of shows and producers to really think about how they cast shows. It's like every guy in this show has to be six foot tall, have this much muscles, be able to sing this high and do this thing. And every girl has to be under five, three and be able to weigh this much weight. And I feel like that's what Broadway was when I moved to New York. And I think- over the 10 years I've lived here, Broadway has actually now shifted back to let's try to showcase individual artists, individual people, at least individual types of people. But I remember be like going to these open calls and just being like, oh, I'm not the type they're looking for. Like, what am I doing here? And so rather than like try to keep doing something that I felt was, um, I guess, a waste of my time, uh, I decided to do my own art and drag kind of became that. I don't know if that was a short way of telling that story, but... But it was the perfect way of telling it. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, it, you know, drag is one of those things you can just kind of do. You, you, you are self-producing and you also are self-art-directing, like you said, Ashley, where it's like you, you decide what you're going to wear, what you're going to look like, you know, who you're going to be. And that's very appealing to me. And I think what's cool about my career is that now people are starting to, like, think of projects for me, you know, that are just made for me as I am. I don't have to kind of be this type that I, I never was and was never going to be. It's 
so interesting. I even remember auditioning for colleges. The CCM application said, take a good look at yourself and take anything unique and individual away because you need to turn into these characters, these archetypes that you'll be playing on stage. And I took that so deeply to heart where I was like, oh, any sense of self, any identity, let me strip that away so I can become what other people want me to be. And I do feel a trend centering on authenticity over these past few years has led to people being like, no, what is actually unique about me? And how do I find the vulnerability to share that? Whether it be in film or TV, in theater. And Honestly, drag has been so ahead of that curve. That seems to be the seed it was built from forever. And also what happens when someone who doesn't look like or seem to you like the previous person who played a role plays that role. It's so funny because I was just reading about they completely recast Hello, Dolly in the 60s with Pearl Bailey, an entirely black cast. And it sold like gangbusters. So Carol and Carol Channing was like a big proponent of it. And I read all this stuff about it. So apparently... The producers of the movie, Hello, Dolly, basically said, if you guys are still running by the time we actually show this movie, we're going to give you an extra payout. So the producers of Hello, Dolly were like, how can we keep this show on Broadway? So like four years into the run, they recast with Pearl Bailey leading an entirely black cast of Hello, Dolly. And how amazing that that show did so well and actually kept the show on Broadway enough so they got that payout. So again, interesting that it was financially motivated still, but at least like, hey, if people were thinking about this stuff like in the 60s, why are we still having this conversation now? And how do we tie up these loose ends and stop falling, putting ourselves in the same ruts? Even with Disney Plus's re-release of Cinderella and how with Whitney Houston producing, they cast it with so many wonderful people, Mm -hmm. Brandy as Cinderella, Whitney Houston as the godmother, Whoopi Goldberg as the queen, Mm -hmm. um, Paolo Montalban, I believe is his name, as the prince. So he's so cute. Oh my God. So cute. I loved him, but also Asian men as the sex symbol. Romantically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Doesn't happen much. And I remember that was a huge deal then and watching it now, I'm like, this is just joy. Like this holds up so well. Yeah. It's crazy to me. And then when Disney redid Cinderella again, 15 years later, it was an all white cast. It was just full on pasty English people. And it's funny, especially a story like Cinderella, where it's like, it's not like we're really telling some historical tale. This isn't, this isn't the crown. (laughs) (laughs) We don't know what Cinderella looked like because she's not real. If you're in this industry in any sort of way, I think we all can just always start taking account and thinking about what we're doing and how are we supporting, including, and also allowing other things beyond what we expect to happen. Yeah, even simply with James Corden and the Golden Globes, he was a straight man playing a gay man. And his representation of that, I think, showed that he was playing at a human as opposed to existing in a truth, which was a lost opportunity. It was. I think you're totally right. I think it's interesting because this idea of allowing actors who are representative of their characters is something that is kind of new to Hollywood. I mean, we've had Mm. so many straight cisgender actors of both genders playing non-cisgender, playing not straight characters and getting huge accolades for it. When you know there are so many people who fit that type of that character, including, you know, any number of gay men who've worked on Broadway who could have played that character or, you know, who have played that character. You know, it's it's a it's a it's not great, 
but it's a, it's a new conversation that I think a lot of actors have to have with themselves. Oh, like, do I need to make space for other people who could actually play this more accurately than I could? Or at least who, or at least who like haven't had all the same opportunities I have. And this is a great opportunity for someone else. I hear you. And I'm not saying this is my position, but I can imagine an actor with a huge following that genuinely believes in, you know, the prom was all about representation and authenticity is important, right? right. It's like the central nugget. And he's saying, how many eyeballs might I bring to this that wouldn't otherwise be looking at it of people that maybe need mm -hmm. to hear this? We don't think Meryl Streep was enough of a draw. <laughs> you know what? Touche. You're, you're, completely right done and done they got meryl they don't need me, <laughs> they got meryl you know they got meryl they got nicole kidman i think they they think they've got enough uh box office draw obviously james corden's not queer but he is i would say a friend to the queer community a friend definitely to the theater community you know of, of a big proponent of of my specific community living here in new york city um it is the first time i've really noticed a big backlash to what would have, I think, been a pretty typical casting five years ago? Truly. Maybe less. Think about this. You know, I don't remember hearing quite the same backlash for someone like Darren Chris, who played Andrew Cunanan in The Assassination of Johnny Versace, a queer character. And I think part of that, too, is also because Darren Chris is one of the few, like, half Filipino, half white actors who are, look like Andrew Cunanan in this world. But he played Blaine and Glee before well, that. I think it's interesting that's like in his acceptance for all the awards he won for that. He's like, hey, hanging up my hat, no longer playing queer characters. And I was like, well, you did wait till you got the Emmy, babe. I guess the thing to take it back to is like, it reminds me that like the best thing to do is to keep creating content in your own voice and allowing other people to be inspired by you as you are. And then hopefully they create content for you or allow as a casting director, as a writer, when people walk into the room who don't look like the character you envisioned, um, change the writing. It's not that hard. I think a, a really amazing example of that is Killing Eve. Sandra Oh walked in and they were like, oh, this is the character. The character was never written as an Asian woman. Her being Asian isn't like a central part of the show, but it is part of that character's identity that was not in the script. And it's all the richer for it. Why yeah. not? Yeah. I mean, there's no there's no reason why that character couldn't be that. Is there anyone you think, particularly in the romantic comedy genre, like is doing it right? Where have you seen it flourish? Or maybe where do you see little seeds being planted? Yeah, I mean, I think it's cool that like, uh, like people like Jonathan Bennett are now part of like Hallmark. Yeah. And I think it's, it's funny, it's even Jonathan Bennett in this community got backlash of like, oh, well, it's a pretty cisgender white gay man, you know, with another pretty handsome white partner on the show. And I think taking one step even if it's a half step forward or a baby step forward, it's still a step forward. But I do think romantic comedies are nice because they allow access to different stories and ideas, especially now as we start expanding beyond the typical when Harry met Sally, you've got mail, all these like big, huge romantic comedies we think of from our childhoods, having different different faces on those things. Why not? Of course, why not? That's the whole reason for this podcast to exist. Because even... In the faces it did represent, I feel like it may have misrepresented what love is and what you should strive mm. for in a relationship. It sticks with you, man. It's a hard 
identity to shed when your entire childhood, especially being a child obsessed with entertainment and honestly growing up in Orange County mm-hmm. and wanting to be on stage and thinking that looking and talking and acting a certain way was very important. Mm-hmm to shed these lessons. They stick with me and I struggle with them to this day. I mean, I just got engaged last week and <gasps> I'm thinking about it. To, big congrats. Know? No, I did know. I just, I didn't know if we wanted to talk about it on the pod, but big congrats. Oh, I'll talk about anything. I'm, trust me, as someone who was labeled fake for so many years, my constant strive to be authentic is overwhelming. <laughs> I, I'm so excited for you, Ash. That's so awesome. Thank you. But it was 10 years of the same relationship falling apart every time we changed. Mm-hmm. Where was the representation of that and everything we were watching? I just thought there was something wrong with me. Like I maybe was inherently unlovable. Yeah. I mean, I would say like the, 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 the big headline, right, is that romantic movies, I think, are usually about lust and connection Hmm. and less about true long-lasting love right there's a reason why we talk about the meet cute in romantic movies because the movie is usually honestly just about two people meeting and having a connection what did you love though growing up it this has infiltrated Mm. our culture from the beginning i think we all love it in some ways did you have a romantic comedy you loved I would love to talk about something like Pretty Woman because, first of all, it is, I think, in hindsight, kind of a weird story. A man pays for a hooker and then... Sex worker, I think, is the term No, now. you're totally right. Hires a sex worker uh, and then uses his power and privilege to manipulate her uh, into, I guess, falling in love with him, uh, maybe? Mm-hmm. Or or they fell in love all the time? Like, it's like, it's, it's so funny because when you unpack it all, you're like, wait, if he didn't have all of the money, would she have fallen for him? <laughs> Well, it's interesting. They set up that character like he is hungry for connection from everyone that doesn't want to give it to him. He literally opens the film screaming at some ex-girlfriend while he's at a party with all these people that want to talk to him. That's an inner turmoil I think is very interesting. A public persona versus like an inner struggle to connect to an authentic relationship. But then everything that unfolds, yeah, it doesn't quite match up. And then they even end it with Hollywood. This is the dream. You could go from walking the streets to be the person looking condescendingly upon them. It's it's funny, though, because, like, I think for me, I grew up, you know, my mom is a single mom. And, like, before I moved to Orange County, I lived with her. And then I moved in with my dad. I saw her struggle so much. And I remember this idea of, like, a fantasy of, like, oh, what if there was someone who could, like, make it all easy. You know, now you do have the Rodeo Drive and the the fancy clothes. I think part of that too is part of it's like this romantic ideal, but then part of it is also like vestiges of this super materialistic society we also live in where you think that like that having all these nice things will make you happy. <laughs> mm. Whether that's a nice man or a nice dress or whatever it is, you think all those things are going to make you happy. And I think the rest of your life is learning that that isn't true. It was always less about the romance for me and more about like the scenarios, the B story, the like, like another one that I was thinking about as we were, as I was kind of prepping for this podcast is like, you've got mail. And like that movie is obviously a romantic comedy, but it's also really about the demise of small business. <laughs> mm-hmm. And like, and the big, rise of big, the huge, big, yeah. Uh, White you know, whale. and I think that's what that. Honestly, that's that part of the movie is what interested me as a kid. Part of me, because I always love how things work. I remember like my first time going into Barnes and Noble. Because like when we were really little, those kinds of stores didn't exist. And then as we got a little older, that became like this huge thing. It's like these big, huge, giant bookstores that, by the way, also now don't really exist. 
You've right, you've got mail too. too. With Joe Fox on the bottom and Jeff right, Bezos right. on top. Now yeah. it's like, <laughs> yeah, now it's like Tom Hanks's character is like, oh crap, I got to close my giant Barnes and Noble. Is it Nora Ephron or Nancy Myers that wrote? Oh, I, I, I will never know the answer to this. I think it's Nora Ephron. I will double check this and make sure it's correct. But written by a woman who is iconically New York and really made an effort to put a lot of stories about love into the universe that did have these pervasive themes that maybe fed us a bit of spinach with our milkshake. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the thing too, is I don't think I like romantic comedies that don't have something else going on. Cause like the other one now I'm thinking of that I love is like Working Girl. I've never seen that one. Working Girl is so great, but it's just like, you know, it, it's such an 80s fantasy, first of all. And just this, like, the fact that the secretary is able to, like, work her, excuse me, we don't use that word secretary anymore either. Oh, my God, all these jobs we have new names for. So this administrative <laughs> assistant basically, you know, fakes it till she makes it in the world of business in New York City. I think it's such a cool story. The only problem with that, of course, is that the villain is also a woman. Uh, why, do, why does it, it got to be like that? Girl, Here's right? my question, though. Is she the villain because she pushes her down as a woman? Or is she a fully fleshed out villain that happens to be a woman? Because frankly, I, I love female villains. As long as they're not against the protagonist because they're a woman and they are pushing them away because they feel threatened. It's a good question. It's, so it's, spoiler alert, it's Sigourney Weaver um, who oh. plays the boss of Melanie Griffith, right? Is the, is the actress? God, I should have I done my research first. I'm gonna have to do it. I haven't seen it, but that sounds right. I, I have this picture of a woman with beautiful blonde hair, kind of 80s. I love romantic comedies where there's like another story going on. And maybe that's because I didn't really see myself in romantic comedies. Like I didn't see myself in a lot of the characters yeah. there. Certainly not the main characters. <laughs> I was the I was the Catherine Hahn in all these movies, right? So it's like <gasps> you know, so now that Catherine Hahn is finally getting her due, I'm like, this is what I want. Now now I want them to go remake all of those movies where she was like the best friend. Wait, did you hear that they want she wants to do she wants to do like a waiting for Godot style like romantic comedy where it's just like from the point of view of like the brunette best friend. <laughs> Like in the back, you see like Kate Hudson running around. Wait, I did. And it's her and Judy Greer yes. who actually played every best friend. It's like a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's what I meant. That's what I meant. I said waiting for a Godot, but I, I, you're correct. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. I would die for that film. That is actually what I am hungry for right now. Like right? in terms of my personal representation, that's where I would live and die. Like what is the version of that for you? Like what story do you want told either for the gay community or the drag community? Well, I think it's interesting because the gay community is at a very interesting um, juncture, junction. What, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, intersection. Uh, How about that? Okay, yeah. I got a crossroads featuring Britney Spears. Um, <laughs> hashtag free oh, Britney. Britney. Uh, and in that a big part of the focus of the gay rights movement, gay equality movement was this fight for gay marriage, which has now been passed here in the United States. It's still a big fight around the world, but at least here in the United States, it is now the law of the land. But it does kind of give us this option of a very heteronormative life if we so choose mm -hmm. to have, you know, one partner, have kids in most states, still hard in some states to, you know, buy a house and live in the suburbs and live a life that is kind of the ending of a romantic comedy. And you're like, oh, well, now I can see myself there. And now I'm also in a time where, oh, just because that is the case that I have this option, like what are there other options there? And I think there's so many stories 
to explore about what it really means to be in a gay relationship for 10, 20 years, especially in addition to gay marriage not being legal. There's a whole huge generation of out gay men who died, who died, who weren't able to live to have these long, long term relationships, right? We have so few people who've been in relationships for 40 years because they would have died. Uh, we're still learning as a certainly as a gay male culture what that is. Then there's also a whole additional subset of stories about the trans community that are just just starting to be told in, in ways that are less about the transition itself and more about their lives and their futures and their what happens. I think we're just starting to just scratch the surface of trans identity in in stories uh, represented on screen and certainly in romance. You know, I think how great that we get to see different types of trans romances in pose on TV, um, especially mm. trans women of color. It's funny because it's, Right, we go back to like, what is the definition of a comedy? It ends in a wedding, right? You go back to Shakespeare or whatever. Isn't that like what people say? 100% difference between a drama and a comedy is just it ends in a wedding. Right. And a wedding is kind of the beginning of your life together in some ways. But then like everything that happens afterwards, I don't know if we found a many uh, entertaining ways to make it super comedic what happens in the next phase of life. That's a good point. When we're having these conversations, like the messy is funnier and more beautiful than everything. Right. Well, comedy is built on surprise, right? And you know, it's like, oh, you thought it was gonna be one thing and it's a slightly different thing. And that's that makes you laugh. And, and there's so much more surprise to be had in two people who don't know each other than two people who do know each other very well. In my mind, like what would the closest thing be? Like the buddy genre, but now it's instead of them being friends, they're just romantic partners. Cause I think that's what your romantic partner hopefully ends up being if you've with them a very long time is they're your best friend they're your person you want to share all of your life with and all of your life may entail hijinks but it's less about the two of you connecting with each other which is I think the structure of romantic comedy is finding that point of connection so like is that the next wave is like romantic comedies that are actually just built on the genre of buddy movies like is it Barb and Stark with a Vista Del Mar but it's like Barb and Star love each other deeply Right. I would love that. Yeah. You might like actually Meet Cute did an episode called Indie Drag Race. And I think it was about finding love as you're developing a drag family. And oh, it's actually one of my favorites, the one called What I Miss Most. And it's about two men in an assisted living facility that one had been straight his whole life, one is a gay man, and their companionship turns into something more. I find that one so heartwarming to shine a lens on the evolution of love and also how who we love in the moment is exactly right. And I don't mean that to undermine anyone that's been gay their whole life. I don't think it does. I think people are now hopefully opening their minds to the fact that like some people are gay from the, the minute they are out of the womb and some people find it out for themselves much later in life and some people find parts of themselves that are that at some point. And, you know, sexuality can always be changing and fleeting, but it's like always true and it's always That's you. That's a good soundbite. But I'm saying like, uh, you can't tell me to change my sexuality because you don't agree with it. But like, I may find in the future that I choose, you know, or I am, I have changed who I'm attracted to or who I'm attracted to has changed. So you are a symbol of identity for multiple communities. You know, you were the first Persian contestant on RuPaul's Drag Race. 
Canadian. Yes, true. Uh, I am. I am the first Canadian. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and your now iconic performance, lip syncing to Katy Perry's "Firework" in an American flag hijab, which was deeply moving. I rewatched it last night with tears all over my face, but I wasn't the only one crying. You made Jeff Goldblum cry. I'm curious, as a performer and a human, what was pulsing through your body during that performance? Obviously, um, very emotional having faced Jeff's line of questioning mm -hmm. about why I would wear something like this on the runway. Um, what kind of emotion were you feeling? A lot of things. A lot of it was just like the weight of what I think is just this common perception in Western media of which Jeff has been a consumer his entire life. And most people probably listening to this podcast have been their entire life of Middle Eastern people as anti-women, terrorists at worst, just 40 to 50 years of intense Western media bias against Middle Eastern people. Muslim people or people who appear to be Muslim, right? I think it's it's interesting now having been someone in this community who has some visibility to kind of see the diaspora of the entire like Manasseh community, which Middle Eastern, North African and South Asian community of which there are many different languages, many different cultures, many different religions in that group of people, but that all of us do face this kind of Western media bias against us. All of these um, negative portrayals in the media really affect people in this community, regardless of whether they personally are Muslim or not. And it's so frustrating to me because I, I saw my mom encountering it regularly. You know, she is much darker than me. She has a very thick accent. You know, as a kid, she would never say she was from Iran. She would say she's Persian because she didn't want people to discriminate more against her. You just get scared of, you know, the discrimination and a hijab for those who are practicing Muslim is a very visible marker of being Middle Eastern or at least of being Muslim. There are also obviously non Middle Eastern Muslim people in Iran, where it's the law to wear a hijab, which is also wrong in my mind. And then here in the United States, where if you do wear a hijab, you uh, can really be discriminated against. And so I was just kind of feeling the weight of all of that. So many women face uh, and men too, in different ways that I wanted to fight for them in that lip sync. Um, yeah, that was what was going through my head. Sorry, that's not really a romantic comedy topic, but I uh, know, but it is a story <laughs> I would like to see more of. Well, what I was, I, you know, it goes back to like, uh, there's no reason why a romance can't be part of any story. You know, people say like, oh, why does there be romance in it? I'm like, why not? Romance is part of life. I like when there's romance in superhero movies. I like when there's a romance in a Star Trek show. Like, put the romance anywhere. Do you fall in love easily? Mm, no. <laughs> That's interesting. I mean, why do you think that is? Um, well, I have a lot of love. I think especially as I'm older, you know, I've been with my same partner now for, uh, it'll be 10 years this summer. Congratulations. Thanks. Uh, I, yeah. I love him as dearly as I love you. You know, we love each other a lot. And I think obviously our 10 years have had amazing ups and downs as well. I guess to me, this idea of like loving someone, especially having been with someone now for 10 years, I'm like, well, that's real love. If we can deal with each other's bullshit for 10 years and like learn how to be better people through it. Now that I've done that for 10 years, I'm like, well, if, if for some reason Casey and I ever decided to end things, like who... I, you better really come through or if I'm, if I'm going to spend another 10 years on another person, my God, like, uh, you know what I mean? Like, yes, it was so much to parse through each other's real trauma that influenced us who we are as adults. And I, I don't think I could do it again easily. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Darius Rose, I have a few lightning round questions. Let's do it. 
Hero or villain? What would you rather be? Uh, Villain. Me too. Time machine or teleportation? Time machine, 100%. Would you rather be trapped in a rom-com with your enemies or a horror film with your friends? Rom-com with my enemies because I think I'm someone who can find things to like about my enemies. Which Tom Hanks do we love the most? Tom Hanks and You've Got Mail, Sleepless in Seattle, or Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood? I've only seen You've Got Mail, so I'm gonna have to go with You've Got Mail. And then what is the greatest act of love you have ever witnessed? <sighs> greatest act of love. I mean, I think it was my mom fighting for me her whole life, you know, doing everything she could. Granted, I don't agree with all of her choices she made, but she did them out of love, including all of the stuff that I think of as trauma. I know in her mind, she was doing it because she loved me so intently. All of the judgmental things she did, it's because she really thought that like, if I didn't follow her path, bad things would happen to me. And she loves me so much, she would never want anything to happen to me. So she still to this day, <laughs> fights me on almost every decision I make out of love. And if someone can be that stubborn uh, for however old I am, years, you know, that's love. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I heard Tucci on Marin the other day and he goes, the biggest things we experience in life are love and loss and only one is guaranteed. Right. And I've had so much love, yeah. regardless of how it was channeled and funneled. And I need to own that as the privilege that it is. Totally, totally yeah. is. Sorry, that wasn't a juicy one. Give me another one. It was juicy to me. <laughs> You are perfect. You are perfect. All I want is you. I don't want the right answer. I just want you. Okay. Oh, Darius Rose, yes. aka Jackie Cox. I love you. I love you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for sharing your heart and your time with me. I love you so much. And I will talk to you soon. I will talk to you soon. Mwah. Boost, boost. so much fun. How lucky am I that I have such a close friend with so much to say to so many people. And I'm glad he left a few personal stories out of there, like when he took me to see naked boys singing in New York City when I was 16. There was lots of singing and lots of flopping. Speaking of well-dressed humans, this week the pictures of Adam Driver and Lady Gaga leaked from the set of House of Gucci, and I am overwhelmed by the looks, but also the energy they are giving me. I mean, oh my God, it made me believe that once again, we can have nice things and there might be a light at the end of this tunnel. I mean, Darius brought up the assassination of Gianni Versace, but mm, I think it's gonna have some competition with the House of Gucci. Since I won't be able to watch that this weekend, I am putting out three things I will be watching this weekend, some of which were inspired by Darius himself. Number one is a double feature, coming to America and coming to America. Okay, please don't judge me. I have not seen the first coming to America. I know I'm an awful person. That's why I'm going to sit down to a double feature this weekend, take them both in and experience the genius that is Eddie Murphy then and now. Followed by number two, Darius brought up that he felt like Katherine Hahn in every movie, that she's the quintessential best friend, and oh my god, I'm obsessed with her. She is going through a Katherine Hahnaissance right now. So you know what I'm gonna say, her as the female villain in WandaVision on Disney+. Plus. Have I watched it already? Yes, I have. Am I going to watch it again to watch her arc in particular and what I missed? Yes, I am. 
This woman can play supervillain witches, a MILF exploring her sexuality, a great mom that just loves pot, a rabbi with a penchant for immature men. I am telling you, she can do it all, and I am here to watch it all. She is one of those strong, amazing females that we all need more of in her life, which leads me to number three, Moxie, on Netflix, directed by Amy Poehler. I've already watched it. I won't lie. There's a lot of celebrity children in there you're going to love. There's a lot of feminist tropes you're going to love. It's based off of a best-selling novel. It's delicious. It made me rethink my own high school experience. Run, don't walk. I made my parents watch it with me on my birthday because that's just how cool I am. If you're looking to watch some of what we brought up in this episode, Darius mentioned The Prom, currently on Netflix, The Assassination of Gianni Versace, Glee, Cinderella on Disney+, Plus. make sure it's the brandy one, Killing Eve, the first LGBTQ holiday movie called The Christmas House, You've Got Mail, Pretty Woman, Meet Cute's productions of Indie Drag Race and What I Miss the Most, available uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Working Girl, which, ugh, that's something I need to watch this weekend, Sigourney, I'm watching it for you. I want to confirm, yes, Nora Ephron, Wrote You've Got Mail. Yes, I'm mad at myself for not knowing that immediately. Oh, and we talked about Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar and Pose. Man, we talked about a lot in this episode. Please join us next week as we come back to share more about your favorite romantic comedies and stories of love. Make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And DM us, write us. We want to hear from you. What questions do you want our guests to answer? What questions do you have for me? What stories of your own meet cutes do you have to share? Write us at meet cute on Instagram. I'm Ashley Eskew and... I'll have what she's having. <laughs>